church and take your Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 4. This last section before Paul gives final greetings is a tightly brief pericope, constructed outline, I would say, of Christians and those who are without Christ. So let's look together this morning at chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is easy for us as your people to become dull. We need the word, we need the sacraments. Lord, they are your sustaining work that continues on in our lives that that sanctify us. Lord, there are many things that we do here in this life that we will continue to do into eternity with you with great joy and fulfillment. Yet there is one task that won't remain, Jesus, when you return. It'll be final. It'll all be over. And that's evangelism. So I pray that you would cause us to contemplate this passage well. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would create for Christ's community church a culture of evangelism something that would be nurtured together as men and women. We would certainly pray this for our own households, and and yet, Lord, not just for our own households, but for those who you give us a, a sphere of influence to within each of our own vineyards that we live and where life takes us. As we go into the world, that is, as we go and in our going, where where we live, Lord, in your providence, you are placing and putting people into our lives. We pray that we would give gospel hope to those who are without you. Somewhere along the way, Lord, as you saved us, you brought varied people and circumstances that led us to you. Could have been family, could have been close friends, could have been the church, Lord, but if we were outside the church, it could have been just people who reached out to us. 
we give you thanks for their impact of how you use them as human instruments to bring us to Jesus. And, and yet, Lord, we, are, we, are, we have a desire for souls. And I pray, Lord, in the sobering nature of this text, that we wouldn't um, pull away from it. Rather, we would be drawn near to you because we have the words of life. The gospel is the good news that saves us. And, and yes, Jesus, we know you are continuing to save because you haven't returned yet. So bless your people in the gospel and give us a burden for those that don't know Jesus. We pray in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Evangelism is a part of every Christian's life. I certainly believe that the gift of evangelism is given in special ways to certain believers, but we're all to participate in all of the gifts. You and I are engaged in a spiritual war. It is a, a gospel war. It's a war that began in the garden. And we as the human race, all of us across the globe, fall in one of two camps. On one side, there is the seed of the woman, the offspring, of course, which comes from Christ, and there is the seed of the serpent, those who belong to Satan. This section here, though brief, is, it's really practical. I would say it's real clear, super helpful um, as we're going to dive into this. I've really think, though, over the course of my lifetime, um, that evangelism itself is more caught than taught. Generally speaking, we all know, as Christians, if we've been saved any length of time, we know what's taken place to us. We certainly desire for that and want that in the lives of who are without Jesus. And so I do think a, a culture of evangelism can be nurtured among us as we share gospel stories, as we share our interaction, as we pray for one another, as we bring people who are on our minds and together as witnesses, we, we pray for them because we want to reach out to them. We want to tell others about Jesus. And this takes, there's really no mincing words with this. You know, I've, I've been involved with varied instruction of evangelistic type teaching that try to pre prepare us in a way that um, I think is really unrealistic. Because the bottom line is all of our lives are messy. And getting involved in the life of someone else who doesn't know Jesus is messy. It's going to take risk on our part. 
And as a Christian, we have to, we have to embrace the militant terms that God gives the Scripture because, yes, you're going to be attacked. You're going to face ridicule. You're going to face shame. It's possible you might be ostracized. But it's all, of course, worth it. Because in the here and now, we want to live for that which is eternal. We don't want to just think about our own lives in the things that are temporal. You know this is true. There's three things that are going to last in eternity. There's God, the Word of God, and it's going to be people. People who will either eternally perish or those who will be eternally with Jesus. So we want to live for those things. You want to think about living your life through that lens. And it doesn't matter our occupation. It doesn't mean you have to be in ministry uh, as, as a full-time occupation, be a pastor, be a missionary. It could include that. But the bottom line, when you look at the book of 1 Corinthians, and I think about 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and whatnot, God in large part saves people for the place where he's going to have a sphere of influence on. So we don't have to think and be overly burdened about the need to go somewhere, if that's what God has for you, he's going to open up those opportunities. He's going to continue to nurture in your heart those, those things. But it's rather in the place that you live. And I, I really think as we look at this brief pericope, I want to go about this in two different ways, okay? So we're going to give you uh, two different things. And the first one is this. I think Paul, what he does here is he talks about talking to Jesus about people in verses 2 through 4. So that's going to be the first examination that we take is talking to Jesus about people. And then secondly, in verse 5 and 6, we're going to look at talking to people about Jesus. Because I really think this whole section, though brief, it's, it's power-packed. It's essential and it's needful. And as we, as we reckon back, as Pastor Alex took us through um, what had attacked the church at Colossae through chapters 2, we then transitioned into the life of the church. And we've been talking about the Christian's relationship to Christ. And then we've been talking about the Christian's relationship to the church and then we began to talk about the Christian's uh, relationship for those who are married with their spouse. And, and for those who have children, the parents with their children in their, and, and the children to their parents. And then, of course, in equating it in our day and age, work. The Christian in their work, their occupation. And so it's, I think, most appropriate because I think we begin within what should be nurtured within to expand. The church meets to be edified by the Word of God. The book of Acts is consistent to, to share this, and then it goes. And in its going, it takes Jesus to the world. So, in saying that, let's look at the first part of this. Talking to Jesus about people in verses 2 through 4. He says to continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. 
And at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Now, the beginning part here, to persevere in prayer and then to be alert or to be watchful, I don't think those are just general exhortations, though that would be true, right? We're to be alert about everything and to, we're, we're to be watchful in prayer and those kinds of things. But I really think because this is a small new paragraph here, I think it's concentrated and it's to think about how we're to think about praying for people. We want to go to Jesus about people who are in our lives. So when he says to continue steadfastly in prayer, I don't think he's really talking about like an intensity. Rather, I think he's talking about to make it a habit. In other instruction, Paul will talk about to pray without ceasing. He's not talking about, I don't think, your posture or your position. We can pray in all sorts of positions. I remember years ago on Wednesday evening with all of us gathered together, I went through a series on various positions that, that people prayed in. What I really think this is, and when the Bible talks to, to pray without ceasing or to pray continually, is what the Quaker Thomas Kelly referred to as God consciousness. Now think about this. Every day of your life, you have things that you all have to do where the world takes you from the moment you wake up in the morning to the end of the day. And as those who have been made alive in Christ, you have, all of us have it, this consciousness that's about God. It's consideration of your own life, and it's also the things that are going on around you. And there can be some very intense things that you're experiencing at work or in family life or wherever, and yet there's this communion that you possess that I think Thomas Kelly was accurate about. It is a God consciousness. And you could no more turn it off if you're a genuine believer than if you ever tried because God is alive. Christ is in you. The Holy Spirit is in you. Now, having said that, there can be things that we all do to uh, decrease or to diminish if we neglect the means of grace to nurture that consciousness. So, I think when we begin to think about evangelism, I think this is where we want to start to, to continue steadfastly in prayer and I really believe that prayer is the most underrated resource of evangelism. We begin to think of the things that we have to say and exactly how we have to say it and to try to get our point across correctly. But this is a spiritual war we're engaged in. And it's essential that you and I enter into that battle with a God consciousness, a Christ-centered consciousness between you and Jesus and taking people 
that you know of that are in your life. So we go to Jesus for everything. And in this regard, we, we're to continue, that is, we're to not give up. And you get weary, don't you? You get weary. We all do. We're in our flesh. Those things still remain. And yet there is something tugging within us in this consciousness to consider our own lives in relationship to Jesus. And it must not. It should never just stop there. It should be in consideration of the lives that we know of who are without Christ. That's why I think he goes through this next part here. He says to be watchful. Continue steadfastly in prayer and then being watchful. Now, when you see this in the Bible, to be watchful or to be alert, depending on your translation, it is always thinking about, to think about your life in light of Christ's return. We know that Jesus is going to return, so this gives us a proper priority to think of it in order that Jesus is going to return. I need to think about my life. I need to be alert and to stay awake. I need to be aware of the people in God's providence and care is bringing into my life in light of eternal things. In light of eternity. I think to be watchful here, in some respects, means to just look around you. Think about where life is taking you and think about the different relationships that God is bringing into your life and to embrace those things. To be thoughtful about it. To carry this Christ consciousness to pray for people and to be that person that is, that is seeking those types of relationships. And then I think this is essential to all this. He tells us to do this with thanksgiving. He tells us to do this with thanksgiving. Now, I want us to go back and look at this because being thankful is mentioned seven times in this brief epistle. And we're called upon in everything to be thankful in Scripture. The believer is to be thankful. Why is that? Because we get forgetful. So these things got to be nurtured. They got to be thought of on our part. They've got to be prayed over. They've got to have discussions over these things with within our family context and within the, the church context. In that way, we, we bear one another's burdens. And yet, God says that as we pray, as we commune with Him, as we are being alert with, with how we are living our lives and the relationships that God is giving us, He's telling us, never forget. Be thankful about my grace and favor that has been poured into your life. And how God has saved you. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. Paul says, we always thank God. Chapter 1, verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father. And then he goes through a, a number of beautiful phrases that end up of, of giving thanks that he's made you a part of his kingdom. In chapter 2, Verse 7, as you're being rooted and built up in the things of Christ and established in the faith, as you're being taught these things, you're to abound in them with thanksgiving. 
chapter 3, verse 15. And man, he rips them off here in verse 15, 16, and 17, where he talks about in 15, be thankful. He talks about in 16, with thankfulness in your hearts. Again, that's your inner man. That's where you're communing and have this God consciousness that's going on because true evangelism is going to going to really take place when it's stirred on the inside, then verse 17, once again, we are reminded to give thanks to God. To give thanks to God. To pray in such a way. We are actually instructed to pray to Christ with a thankful heart. Not just always, gimme, gimme, gimme. Why? Because as we are thoughtful to be thankful of God's rich grace and blessing to save us, it produces for us a humility. It leaves us to be dependent upon Christ and to praise Him. Where would my life be at this stage if I didn't have Jesus who saved me 50 years ago? And I think as you're considering this, it's not enough to just rejoice in that. Though that's healthy, that's good. We should want to receive this in such a way to be burdened for those who are without Christ that live around us. To take Jesus to the world that we live in. So we pray. We pray to persevere in it, to be alert in it, and most certainly to be thankful in it. Well, what do we pray for? As Paul shifts here to mention about himself, he says in verse 3 there, at the same time, to pray also for us. And to pray this, that God may open to us a door for him to have the opportunity to take Jesus to people. And I think explicitly, specifically, to interpret that, I think Paul is talking about, and he had never met these people, but he implores them as the body of Christ to pray for him, as Epaphras had brought uh, this letter to them. Pray that God gives him an opportunity to preach Christ. But as a subtext to that, we can embrace this as, Pray that God will give you an open door to proclaim Jesus. To point to people about Jesus. He says here a most beautiful phrase to declare the mystery of Christ. And I think Paul once again is using a play on words. You remember this. The false teachers had used these terms fullness or mystery to tell them they needed an extra experience to save them. Look at chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 18. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels going on in detail about visions being puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Look down to verse 23. 
These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The false teachers were referring to, you need a secret revelation. You need to self-inflict yourself in a harsh style discipline so that you can gain the favor of God, so that you will know the mystery of God. Paul tells us that the mystery is Christ. The mystery is Christ. Think about it. The Son of God, the eternal Son of God, leaving from heaven to descend and to condescend himself with humanity, taking on flesh as his life in purity. The only pure person that ever lived the face of the earth. Think of the strife Jesus had to deal with in this sense, and he did it perfectly, in the contradiction of sinners as one who was holy in word and thought and in deed. The creator of the universe lived a poor, humble life. In love, and he did it in love for his father and to those who he would redeem, he lived a sinless life because it was necessary to become the appropriate sacrifice in word, thought, and deed. Jesus suffered a real physical death on, on our behalf, church. He rose from the dead. He ascended back to heaven. He sits as your kingly priest, united to you, to give you the strength and the power to live the Christian life and to take the gospel to others. Want to talk about mystery? Let's talk about Christ. He is the mystery. You want to talk about a mystery? The mystery of Christ is he raised your dead heart. Where you were dead to the things of God. I was dead to the things of God. I didn't care about the things of God. Though raised in a Christian home, God changed my heart. He changed my mind. He came to dwell within me. He gives me this union where I have a consciousness of him every day and so do you. We want to talk about mystery. Let's talk about Jesus. He's the mystery. And I don't want any of you to think you lack anything because you don't. The mystery, the thing that has united us all together, that puts us all on common ground, the, the needed experience is the experience of Christ. And look at what he did for us. Chapter 1. I just want to read these two verses. They're just so good. Verse 26. Here's the mystery. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Wow. Man, that's the mystery. That's the wonder. That's the splendor that changes hearts, minds, and lives. 
and we all have it equally. He has translated us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. So not only do you have Christ, you now are living for a new kingdom. A kingdom that is alive. It has been inaugurated. It's in your heart, in your mind. There is a sense that we are a shadow of the, of the gathering of God's people now. And there is a kingdom that will be fully realized when Jesus returns. What does he pray for in this communication? How I ought to speak. How I ought to speak. This is fascinating to me. Think about this. Paul's in jail. Okay, Paul's in jail. More often than not, when he's in jail, he's, he's chained. He doesn't ask for freedom here. And he doesn't ask for ease. He says, would you please pray for me? Would you pray in such a way that you would ask God to give me a door? To give me an opportunity to share the mystery of Christ to this people that I'm with in prison. I don't know that I would be asking for that. I know myself pretty well. I'd probably be looking for that ease. I'd be looking to, to get out. He says how I ought to speak. Paul's asking, would you open the door, God? And in opening the door, would you give me the words? Would you teach me to be dependent upon Christ, to be sensitive to the Spirit? And he is trusting in God for the opportunity and the words. And we're no different in that way. Let me give you a couple things to keep it simple. The gospel message is who Jesus is and what Jesus did. Don't give... Don't get yourself overly panicked. Rely on Jesus. Pray for those opportunities. Usually, when we approach the Bible for specific things, we want specific answers. But the facts are, Christianity doesn't work like that for us. I don't know what you're going to be presented with. You don't know what I'm going to be presented with. God doesn't want me to live Paul's Christian life. He wants me to live my Christian life. He's given me a sphere of influence. He's given each of us a sphere of influence after the church has met to be edified, edified weekly. It, it disperses into the realm as we are engaged with the world. Not to be repulsed, they need Christ. Yes, in the world, not of the world, but not hidden away from the world. Let me give you this. This is so good. The gospel, who Jesus is and what Jesus did, is the power, the dunamis, the dynamite of God for salvation. The gospel, when it is believed, it, it blows up and transforms and changes a person. Trust the gospel, not your own abilities. 
The facts are, you're, you might be in settings, I know I've been in settings, with people far more intelligent than I am. And Scripture, as we were looking at in the Bible class today, tells us not to fear. He tells us not to fear. He provides the words and the opportunities. We're just to nurture that relationship with Jesus and to trust Him for those things. It's to rely upon Christ. Yes, we're to talk to Jesus about people. We're to think about people specifically. And I have no doubt in my mind that some of you are sitting here, if not all of you as Christians, that God has brought through the power of the Spirit people to your mind because Christ is the head of the church. I know he has me. We want to look for those relationships. So the second aspect of this as we move along is we want to look at this, the talking to people about Jesus. Talking to people about Jesus. And I would say this, verses 5 and 6, these, these verses are somewhat general, as I was mentioning, and yet each circumstance can be different because we don't live in a box. And God is providentially bringing people into our lives. And so as much as anything, it's not that we have to go looking for it. We need to pray for it. Certainly we need to be alert to it. Many people will never come to church, and some of you were converted outside of the things of Christianity and really didn't come to Christianity until some beautiful soul began to take Jesus to you. So we want to look at this now about talking to people about Jesus. Paul starts this. He says, walk in wisdom, which simply means to live wisely. Walk in wisdom to live wisely. It's to do good and to cease from your sin. To live wisely is to recognize that God is sovereign over every aspect of your life. We don't live compartmentalized. Okay, I'm doing church now for a few hours, and then I go. No, Jesus is Lord. He invades every aspect of our being. And to live wisely and to walk in wisdom, I believe this encompasses this. We need to befriend outsiders. We need to make relationship with people that don't know Jesus. We need to be thinking about that in God-centered ways, and taking those things to Jesus. When we become friends with those outsiders, we obviously have to be careful not to embrace any kind of sin, but we want to do this to live in honor to Christ. Why? Because my life is not my own. I belong to Jesus. He has bought me with a price. Well, I said these things are general, and I think they're, they're difficult, you know, to try to begin to label them. How is it that God wants me to live wisely? I want to give one example. So turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. I just want to give like a quick example. But again, your Christian life, you, you know, we're, we're not living the Christian life in a box. We need to think about this. But we are Americans, right? Right? An American dream is to get rich. 
It really is. And that's the thrust. Let me say this. There's nothing wrong with people who are rich. There are rich people who don't live to be rich, and there can be poor people that do live to be rich. Money itself is amoral. But the facts are we live in a society that is consumed with the American ideology to, to get rich. First, First Timothy chapter 6 Verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, and to many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Now this is a pastoral epistle, but he's relating this to Christians. As Americans, we need to be careful as Christians to not live to be greedy and selfish. It is a horrible stain on those who are outside of Christ when they see, man, that's what she lives for. That's what he lives for. These things come out. They damage our, our Christian witness. Living in sexual sin damages a Christian witness. God calls upon us to be wise with the outsiders. He's saying, do not ignore their destinies. They're out apart from Christ. It's to befriend those who do not know Jesus. And it's asking God to give us relationships so we can point people to Jesus. And I really think the outsiders, when you think about lost people, they fall in my mind, into one of three categories. There are people who don't know Jesus that are curious about the gospel. There are people who don't know Jesus that have become doubters. They've been, you know, uh, heard some things, some aspects of Christianity. They're, they're doubters about the gospel. And then, of course, there are rejectors of the gospel. And each of those groups are to be dealt with in wisdom differently. In figuring how to do that, we're to, we're to, we're to pray to the Lord. We're to ask Him to give us wisdom and we're to learn of God. And I really think one way that we can reflect the gospel well is to put on the new humanity that we looked at a few weeks ago, that God has given us. Look back to verse 12 of chapter 3. This is what we should look like to the world. I know it's the interaction within the church, but God wants us to look like this to the, to the world as those who have been chosen and holy and beloved. That's what we are to God. We're secure in God. We're His beloved. We're to have compassionate hearts, to be kind, to show humility to wear meekness, to be patient with others. We're to bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these things, we're to love them. Listen, that lost person that's in your life, 
you have the greatest capacity to love them because we know what love is. We know what love is. And the world has given a horrific view of what love is. These are the things that we're to embrace. Usually when Christian evangelism comes up, we begin to think about, you know, okay, well, how am I going to take it to work? You want to be a good witness at work? Work. Be a good worker. Work is a good vocation, ordained by God prior to the fall. It does great things for the mind and the heart and the soul to work and work hard and work well. Don't, work a, don't worry about giving some sort of direct assault on some poor guy or gal at work and all, all of a sudden that ends up in some sort of discouraging way and then you disengage evangelism. I think one of the things we want to think about here is to don't quit. Have you ever failed? You felt like you failed in, in evangelizing? Man, I know I have. But that's not what we're relying on. We're relying on the gospel. Right? We make things right when we need to make things right. We need to go to someone who's, who doesn't know Jesus and we've, harmed, we, we've wronged them. We need to ask for forgiveness. We need to practice Christianity even with those who don't know Jesus. And here he gives three words, Paul does, in verse 6, speech, gracious, and salt to refer to how we should be talking with people. Logos, charos, and halas in the Greek. It is speech that is gracious. It is speech that is attractive or winsome. And it's to do so with a humble manner. I think salt, as I thought about it, does three things. First of all, we put salt for flavor. I got a salt palate. Don't turn your back on me if you give me a bag of barbecue chips. I'll eat the whole bag. <laughs> what does salt as flavor do? It means to, it, it means to in, let's, let's in, engage people. You think about the world that doesn't have Christ. Man, that's such a dark view of life. We have the words of hope. We have the words that bring eternal life. This gospel message that we have, we should be engaging. We should be salt that adds flavor. Salt preserves. Certainly in the New Testament day, it was used as a preservative. Here's what the gospel does as it preserves. It offers life. It offers hope. It can preserve their life. And also, I think we should think about this in this way. Salt heals. You have people in your life, some of you might have been wandered in here today, that are in severe emotional pain. The gospel heals wounds. In befriending that outsider, we should make the best friends Christians should be. We should know how to be a friend. For Jesus is our friend. A winsome, gentle speech that presents and defends Jesus. This gospel, beautiful, wonderful message of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. 
The goal is not to be funny or smart. The goal is not to win an argument. My dad used to tell me as a kid, I've never seen Jesus. People won to Jesus by an argument. I get there, there'll be times when you're engaging in conversation. I, I love to be able to do that, but we're not trying to win an argument. We're trying to present Jesus. So do you know what that means? Be yourself. Be yourself. Point them to Jesus. Let's do it honestly. Let's do it with love. And let's do it with humility. But let's not be naive. It's going to be difficult. It's going to cost you. Some may reject you. Some may say some horrible things about you. And there's Christians across the globe that are getting their heads chopped up over it. Endure the difficulty. Embrace these militant terms. How important is this text? Let me encourage you with this. Jesus, the conquering king, has won the war. And this battle that you and I are engaged in, it's not one with bombs and guns and tanks, planes. The battle is won by words. Words written and words spoken. The battle is won by the water, the bread, and the wine. God, help us to take Jesus to the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, now we rejoice in the gospel because that's why we're here. The gospel has, has transformed us so many wonderful stories of your saving work. What it's done in my life, what it's done I know in my family's life, and so many beautiful stories of people in this room Give us a thirst, Lord. Help us in this union that we have with, with Christ to be thoughtful about thinking about the eternal and not just the temporal. To look around us and to see in your providential care who you're putting in our way so we could point them to Jesus so they could know the Savior that we know. Thank you, God, for your love. Bless and strengthen your people by your word as we now participate in this holy meal, the Eucharist. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.